1: a special series on the New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-Ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. Kwame Bediako, African Theology for a World Christianity, written by Tim Hartman and published by Langham Publishing in 2021, is the first full-length introduction to Kwame Bediako's theology and that which examines the incredible contributions of the Ghanaian theologian Kwame Bediako, one of the greatest African theologians of his generation. While pushing back against the assumption that Christianity is a Western religion, Kwame Bediako called for a non-Western foundation for a theological reflection, expanded the Christian theological imagination, and offered a path forward for post-Christendom theologies. In this monograph, Hartman engages Bediako's central concerns with identity, specifically what it means to be African and Christian in the aftermath of the failures of colonialism the relationship of theology and culture, and the need of indigenous expressions of Christian faith for the health of theological reflection worldwide. Challenging stereotypical perceptions of African Christianity and pressing readers to interrogate their own theological convictions in light of cultural and societal presumptions, Hartman's work examines the gift of Bediaco's work not just for Africa but for the world. Over the course of our conversation today, we will take a closer look at this important work, how this book and this contribution of Kwame Bediako aids the readers in better understanding African Christianity, and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to greatly benefit from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversations as well. Today we are privileged to talk with Tim Hartman, the author of Kwame Bediako, African Theology for a World Christianity. Tim Hartman is Associate Professor of Theology at Columbia Theological Seminary. His research focuses on contemporary Christian theologies worldwide, Christology, lived theology, and the interrelationship between religious beliefs and practices, and the work of Kwame Bediako and Karl Barth. Tim has also presented on a wide range of topics at various conferences and institutions, such as the American Academy of Religion, International Karl Barth Conference in uh, Stellenbosch University, and the World Christianity Conference at Princeton Theological Seminary. His list of publications also includes critical insights on Karl Barth, African traditional religions, Kwame Bediako, and Christianity in Africa. Tim's first monograph, Theology After Colonization, Kwame Bediako, Karl Barth, and the Future of Theological Reflection, published by University of Notre Notre Dame Press in 2020, examines the work of two theologians, Karl Barth and Kwame Bediako, to gain insight into our contemporary theological situation, how the loss of cultural hegemony, Uh, through rising pluralism and secularization has undermined the interconnection of the Christian faith with political power and how globalization undermined the expansive and expanding mindset of colonization. His uh, other publications also include a chapter titled Karl Barth in the book TNT Clark Companion to Theological Anthropology, published by TNT Clark Bloomsbury in 2020, and Humanity and Destiny, a Theological Comparison of Karl Barth and African Traditional Religions in the volume, Karl Barth and Comparative Theologies, published by Fordham University Press in 2019. His his chapter in the monograph, Religion, Culture, and Spirituality in Africa and the African Diaspora, titled, An Act of Theological Negritude, Kwame Mediaco on African Christian Identity, published by Rutledge in 2016 is also a great chapter that all readers should um, read as well. His journal publications also include African religions as parables of the kingdom, Karl Barth and Kwame Bediako on Revelation and Culture, published in the Stellenbosch Theological Journal in 2019, and The Promise of an Actualistic Pneumatology, beginning with the Holy Spirit in African Pentecostalism and Karl Barth, published in the Journal of Modern Theology in 2017. Tim is also an ordained uh, ordained as a minister in the Presbyterian Church, USA. So welcome, uh, Dr. Hartman, uh, to New Books Network in World Christianity. And thank you so much uh, for taking the time today to talk about your book.
0: Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here and to talk with you. really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Um, first of all, I think we have uh, some important news to share with our listeners today. Um, I believe that there are currently two publishers uh, for this book uh, Langham Publishing and Fortress, Pub- Fortress Press. Currently, Langham Publishing um, has already released this book for those located in Europe and the Global South. And if I'm not mistaken, we have this exact same book being released by Fortress Press for a reader situated in North America. And I believe that will be in February of 2022. So is this correct, uh, Dr. Hartman?
0: It is correct. It was important to me that this book could be widely available to its various readerships. So as... Um the editor at Langham, a man named Peter Quant, uh, knew Kwame Bediako uh, years ago, and Peter was very interested and intent on this book. Um, really, when it was just an idea and a dream, and as I as I talked with Peter about it, I was also wanted to make sure that the book could be widely available in Africa and in the developing world, because Bediako would very much have wanted that. And then I also wanted it available in North America, and so. Thankfully, through some you know some acts of international diplomacy, I was able to uh, have uh, Langham and Fortress work together uh, to to bring this book to be. And so the the manuscript is the same for both books, um, but the covers are different, and uh, Fortress did their own copy editing, so the the pages are different. So the Fortress edition, I think, is about fifty pages longer, um, but it just has to do with font size and, and layout. The books the book. Each book is the same. Of
1: course. Well, thank you for clarifying that. I think it'll be very useful for those situation situated worldwide, wherever you are. For our listeners, um, they can remember this and um, you know um, uh, purchase this book uh, according to where they are located at. And and,
0: it, and it's worth mentioning that Langham mm-hmm. has free global shipping.
1: Oh wow! So um, that's
0: a really <laughs> helpful thing to people um, around uh-huh. the world.
1: Thank you for that. Um, And again, as our new books network serves a worldwide audience, I think this will be very helpful to know. So thank you, Dr. Harman, for clarifying that. Um, Now, I think it'll be great to start our conversation uh, by getting to know you a little more, uh, Dr. Harman. Um, I was wondering if you can share with us about your background, um, where you grew up, uh, where you did your PhD, and how you became interested in your field. And also, please feel free to mention any influential mentors you might have Mm -hmm. had along the way. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, thank you so much. So I actually grew up an hour north of Princeton in New Jersey, in northern New Jersey, in a small town called New Providence. And um, grew up there and really didn't have, um, I traveled a little bit growing up, mostly in the United States. I uh, went to Europe, I think, in 10th grade with uh, some folks from school, but that was about it. Um, went to college in California, and then um, spent my junior year abroad in Europe, and uh, in the UK particularly. And so that was also that was significant kind of to, to begin to get a greater grasp of what was happening in other parts of the world and to begin to see the United States from the outside. Spent the summer of um, just before my junior year in what was then Swaziland, now East Wetini, um in Southern Africa. And so flew in and out of South Africa and spent eight weeks um, in what I thought was the summer, but very quickly discovered was the winter in this, in the southern hemisphere at the tip of Africa. And uh, some cold weeks, but it was very helpful to learn about how people in another culture, country, continent um, saw and understood who God is. Um, at that time when I was there, um, Swaziland had a king. Um, there was a parliament, but the parliament really didn't do much. It was, it was a kingdom. This was the kingdom of Swaziland. And so what I learned from um, fellow Christians is when they prayed to Jesus as the king of kings, they had a very different understanding of what that means than when I gathered with fellow Americans to do that. I think I had developed a bit of an understanding of a God of democracy, that if you get enough people together and they agree, then God will do what we all agree upon. This was not the Swazi way. they like, well, the king does what the king does. Nothing we can do about that. So there's a really helpful corrective to my uh, theology there from uh, these Swazi Christians who were just living their lives and living out their theologies and how they believed it and the ways that their culture had shaped their understanding of God that was super helpful to me. I took that experience. um, I then, after college, I did an internship in a church for a couple years in Seattle and then I was doing high school ministry then and then went to Princeton Seminary uh for three years and got my masters of divinity and then served as a pastor for nine years, first in Los Angeles and then in Baltimore. And at at this point um was also when the um the emerging church movement was beginning and growing in the United States. And it nurtured in me this desire to see how church in the United States could be relevant to cultural changes in the United States. And so I started thinking about those things. As well, I got involved with um, some folks uh, Brian McLaren and some folks doing uh, Amahoro Africa, which is a small little organization. But it got me to, first to Uganda and Rwanda and then to Burundi as well, and helped me to, and to Uganda, yeah it helped me to really see the ways that Africans were wrestling with questions of faith in the 21st century in ways that I wasn't as familiar with. And so this was exciting. And so these various, I was found myself thinking really big questions while also pastoring, and that's what led me to apply to PhD programs. Ended up going to the University of Virginia, um, got a PhD in theology, ethics, and culture. It's a PhD in religious studies. Um, in the religious studies, concentration was in theology, ethics, and culture, and my concentration was in philosophical theology. But then my dissertation looked at both Karl Barth, who I'd been exposed to growing up, and growing up in the Presbyterian Church, as well as Kwame Bediako. I can remember sitting in the the stacks in the Alderman Library at the University of Virginia. And I was um, taking a comprehensive exam in African Christianity. And I was reading some Bediako and just became really intrigued with what Bediako was saying. And so I emailed a friend of mine, a man named Tim Dearborn, who'd worked for World Vision and some other organizations. And I was like, by any chance, did you know Kwame Bediako? Well, about a couple hours later, by the afternoon, he had written an email that said, Dear Jillian, meet my friend Tim. He'd written to Kwame's widow um, because he and his wife, Carrie, had been in Aberdeen with Kwame and Jillian when they were all getting their PhDs together um, back in the the late 70s. And so this was, this kind of got me introduced to um, Auntie Mary, as she's known, Jillian Mary Betiaka, Kwame's widow. And that then allowed me to plan some research trips to Ghana and kind of the work took off from there. So that maybe is a little longer answer than you were thinking, but it, it gets us kind of into some of the material.
1: No, I mean, thank you for that answer, and thank you for sharing about this process, this this journey that you took into uh, writing this book. And it's just fascinating, those little connections that develop into what becomes a book itself. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Now um, I would like to ask if you could tell us more about how you came to write this great book. Um, I know you just mentioned that, mm-hmm. that small connection, that, that, that beginning, um, but this great book, Kwame Bediako, African Theology for a World Christianity, where did this journey begin and how did this idea develop and what led you to examining the contributions of Kwame Bediako and of African Theology? Um, it would be great to hear your story as this monograph kind of builds on um, your previous research. And I think I mentioned in your bio um, some of the work that you've been doing previously and, and before this book came out. And I believe that your work has led to you to also travel the world, as you just mentioned, and visiting you know multiple countries, uh, Ghana, South Africa, and so forth. And if I may just briefly squeeze in one more question here, and please feel free to answer in just Uh, consecutive order. But I'm curious to know what your research process and writing experience was like, especially as you have expressed in your own words in the beginning pages of your book, you were approaching this as an outsider to Bediaco's world. So Dr. Hartman. Mm
0: -hmm. That's a helpful place to begin um, because you're absolutely right. I am am not African. Mm -hmm. Um, I am of white European descent. And I do come to African theology as a as an an outsider, an interested outsider, um, with deep appreciation for what is happening in African theology and in the the movement of the Spirit of God on the continent of Africa. And so, for me, I I tried to be very aware of of that of my position in the sense that it is a privilege and a luxury for me to be able to fly to Africa and spend the time there and. That I've had institutions, both the University of Virginia and Columbia Theological Seminary, that have paid for those things, um, as well as grants from the Louisville Institute, um, to to pay for my time and my travel, and so that ended, like in many ways, the writing of this book started at that moment in the library, um, the University of Virginia, a number of years ago now, over, you know, over a decade by now, ago, um, and by the willingness of uh, Jillian Mary, Betty, Dr. Bediako, Betty to have me come and to spend about a week there and her willingness to open up her archives of, of Kwame's work. Um, when I was there at the Krofi Kristallar Institute outside Accra um, in a town called Akropong I would show up in the library in the morning and um, one of... Dr. Beriaco's assistants would bring me a file and, and, you know, say something like Auntie Mary thinks you'll be interested in what's in here. And so I would have this kind of treasure hunt. I would open it up and see the, the essay that Beriaco wrote when he applied for his PhD program. Um, I'd see sermons, right. That are unpublished. I'd see the, his dissertation um, with the edits on it, when it went to be turned into theology, theology and identity I got to read um, his French master's and his French dissertation. Um, And so all sorts of just amazing connections and contacts that were made there, um, really because of her generosity and willingness to allow me to undertake this project. So, And then for this book in particular, so in another way, it started out as a dissertation. um, And my dissertation itself, um, it had a really boring structure. It had five chapters. The first chapter was the introduction. There was then a Bettyako chapter, a Bart chapter. Chapter four was on both, kind of a comparative chapter, and chapter five was a conclusion. It was entirely unreadable. Like it wasn't bad work, but like you couldn't publish this because they kind of didn't have a thread that tied it all together. So, I can remember. Um, I think this is my after letting my dissertation sit for a year, I um. After my first year teaching here at Columbia, I printed it all out, and I sorted it on the floor of my office into basically new themes, what this would look like, and to see what, how I could make the, my book out of it. So the bulk of that first book, my first book has two parts. I, rewrote, I wrote part one new. That was all new work. But part two is a thematically rearranged um, engagement of Betty and Bart around themes of revelation, religion, and culture. So I finished that project, and then I become aware that I have a whole chunk of material on Bediaco that didn't go in that first book. And I also felt a debt that all of this had been invested in me, um, not just by institutions, but by, by Ghanaians, by Auntie Mary, by ACI. And I had the the space and the opportunity to... Right to, to put that work together that I had really previously written, to rewrite it, to revise it, and then to create um, what I hope is a really accessible, um, not too long um, introduction to Bediaco's theology. Yeah. So I, I hope that that can be a, a gift and a conversation starter for many.
1: Well, thank you for sharing with us that fascinating journey you took and those uh, stories of how you lay out everything on your uh, office floor. And those kind of little stories are like the nuggets where, you know, we get to hear from the author, you know, um, about uh, what entailed into, um, you know, writing this book and um, and into digging deep into the life of Kwame Bediako and African theology. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, now as we take a closer look at the book, uh, we can see that there are a total of seven chapters and this is excluding the introduction and conclusion, um, which are also uniquely and intriguingly titled. I, I love the way you titled each and every chapter. It kind of builds upon the other. And you can see throughout the book, um, it's very accessible. It's very, um, it's, it's not too hard to read. It's, a, for me, it was an easy read in a way that you dealing with everything so well. And one aspect I would like to highlight for our listeners is that um, Dr. Hartman, our author himself, provides a chronological listing of Kwame Bediako's writings at the end. So um, for uh, scholars or students, this is a very practical resource for those interested in studying Bediaco's work. Uh, just by going through that list itself, we are able to see that Bediako's contributions and how he was a prolific writer as well. Um, so Dr. Arman, in the introduction, you lay out some general facts about Kwame Bediako, his life, his education, and Bediako's approach to understanding Christianity. And I appreciated the fact that you were very direct from the beginning, that the aim of your book is not to provide this biography of Kwame Bediako, but instead to highlight his you know, ideas rather than his life. That being said, you do, I know, extensively cover a significant part of Bediaco's life because it is you know very much needed um, to you know show Bediaco's life as his experience goes parallel to much of what he has to contribute regarding African theology. But it' also here that you explain um, how you are undertaking this task of wanting to educate the readers about Christian theologies outside of the West, especially which have originated from the African context. You know, to help us put on some new lenses, I think that's the way you put it in your book, to put on some new lenses in understanding Christianity or, you know, world Christianity. And I remember how you mentioned three key words in the beginning pages of your book, identity, gospel, and culture. And I would like to kind of bring them into the spotlight right now. I think these words are key as they serve as an overarching framework for your book and as they prove to be very helpful in thinking about the questions that both Periaco engages in his work and in which you also seek to address in this very book. So, Dr. Harman, as we take a deep dive into your book, I was wondering if you could begin by talking on more of these concepts, identity, gospel, and culture. Why are they so relevant to both Periaco and your own work?
0: Thank you so much, Matt, for that. Those are three very significant themes for Bediaco. Um But before I think about those, I want to um, affirm two of the things that you said um, in the beginning of the question. One, I am so pleased you're, you appreciate the chronological listing. I had to fight hard for that with the publishers, right? It's, an, it's a lot of pages. Beriako wrote over 75 articles and book chapters, and it's um, there's a lot there. But I find it really helpful to have it organized chronologically, both to, so to track... The development of Beriako's thought, and also um, he was very busy. He um, when he, I mean he was he wrote in the margins of life that as he was spending a lot of his time beginning and then administering the Acrofi Cristaller Institute for Theology, Mission, and Culture, that was the bulk of his time. He would write in response to invitations, um, but didn't have this the, always the luxury to write as much as he wanted. So he became an amazing at um, borrowing from himself, of uh, taking things that he'd already written and then working them up, um, sometimes editing them, sometimes not, for other occasions. And that, the chronological listing helps to track some of that as well, to see some of, some of his own roots. And I, um, on this note about a biography, there's, a, there's tons about Badiako's life that I leave out. And it's, it's intentional on in my part to keep this book focused on his theology. And I do hope that, um, I think a, bi- a biography could and should be written of Bedeako. It's not mine to write, um, but I think, I, I hope that it will happen and um, happen soon. That, that his, his life and the, um, you know, the amazing life that he led could be described in one, one complete story. So thank you for those, those two points. So onto these questions about identity, gospel, and culture. These are perhaps the most significant themes in Badiako's work. Um, this question of identity he felt very personally. He he wrestled with what it meant to be African and Christian, and did so particularly in the aftermath of colonialism. So he had Ghana achieved its independence from the UK at that point um, in the late 1950s when Bediako was about 14 years old. And so he came of age just as his country was coming of age and then was around as Ghana tried to figure out how to govern itself um, on the other side of colonialism. And so he, as as Bediako went to university at the University of Ghana, he was majoring in French and was exposed to all the French existentialists and. Um reading Sartre and others, Bediako became a self-described atheist, and it wasn't until later that Bediako converts to Christianity and has to, and, and wrestles with what it then means not to be a, a European Christian but to be an African Christian. So these questions of identity they they permeate all that he's doing because he wants other Africans to become Christians but to become truly African Christians um, where their theology emerges from. Africa itself. And so he he then understands the gospel as indigenous to Africa, that God has been at work in Africa for as long as there have been people on the continent and even before. One of his um, later lectures, the title of it was that the missionaries did not bring Christ, but Christ brought them. Um, and so that the, the, he's grateful to the missionaries that they, did bring the name of Jesus Christ and that they translated the Bible into indigenous languages. But other than that, there's a, it's a fallacy to think that white people brought God with them. And so Bediako is very insistent that the gospel itself, the gospel of Jesus Christ is indigenous to Africa. And then he wants to understand that gospel from the culture and the context of, of Africa um, and particularly from Ghana and then to understand that everyone is shaped by the culture that we live in and that we grow up in. he'll um, Borrowing from the, the British, he talks about uh, cultural blinkers. In, uh, in, in America, we might call these blinders, right? And I, I think of a horse, you know, with blinders on in a, a horse race, right, that keep it, keep it fakest focused forward. Well, Badiako's image of this is that culture does that for us and that that's not actually helpful that while it may help a horse to run fast and run straight, that that blinds us from what's happening around us. And we don't see the bigger picture. We only see what our culture has taught us to see. And so, Badiako found himself as one raised in Africa, but educated for his graduate work in Europe. He saw things differently than uh, fellow European students, than some of his European professors, certainly than other European Christians. And he wanted to use that difference and to say to them, Hey, there's a whole other understanding of who God is in Jesus Christ that you may be missing. And I'm going to present that to you um, as an African. And that's a bit where his uh, second book, uh, Christianity in Africa, the renewal of a non-Western religion Mm. really comes through. So that's a bit of an overview of those three terms for him.
1: Well, oh, thank you, Dr. Hartman, for you know painting those broad strokes because you know we'll be revisiting these three key concepts you know throughout the chapters and throughout our questions and um, yeah, you I think um, having the having these words in the back of your mind in in reading your work is very helpful because you know it, it comes repeatedly over and over again. Um, and as you have just mentioned right now, um, you discussed the concept of identity um, in more in-depth, uh, playing a central role in Kwame Bediako's life and his work. And you're very, very thorough about this in the very first chapter. I think um, this really uh, has a deep meaning because, you know, it's it's the, it's the early Early years of Bediako that we see this. And I think, in order to better appreciate why Bediako wrestled with this concept of identity for nearly 40 years in his writing, mm-hmm. it is pertinent to touch upon the, you know, as he mentioned the social political context of Bediako's time, his education and early challenges he faced, and even his own conversion to Christianity, you know, as he and his use of concepts like negritude um, in his own journey of establishing an African Christian identity. So Dr. Hartman, do you mind saying more on these aspects and especially on Bediaco's early years um, and how this all connects to his work in writing about African Christianity um, as this will all be very helpful for us to understand the roots kind of of his work? Mm-hmm.
0: I'd be happy to. Mm-hmm. So I mentioned a bit about the atheism that Bediaco mm-hmm. embraced as an undergraduate. And then he went from the University of Ghana. He got a scholarship um, from the University of Ghana to go to the University of Bordeaux in France and study Francophone literature. So this was, this is not a theological degree, right? He's in, he's studying literature, um, first getting a master's, and he's studying a Congolese poet named Shikai Utamsi, who was exiled from Congo to Paris. And so he, he's steeped in these authors of Negritude, of Aimé Césaire and Franz Fanon and others. And so Negritude was this approach of, it was, Césaire invents this word to begin to think about how to recover the, the black past. Um, and Bariako then, one of my claims is that he then is doing this theologically, that he seeks to recover an African past for Christian theology. Um, that's that's jumping ahead. He's not there yet. He's, uh, he's stuck in these authors of Negritude. And so the time comes for him to to write his master's thesis. And he develops writer's block. Um, and he just can't write. And uh, apparently, he writing usually came pretty easily to him and he just couldn't write. And he'd been spending a lot of time with Christians in Bordeaux, but in a way so that he could argue with them. Um, he was a um, essentially an evangelist for atheism in his own mind in, in a way at this point, and was seeking to persuade Christians that what they believed was not true, or that there was no basis for their belief. Well, as he's fighting writer's block, and I, I narrate this in one of the early chapters, Bariaku was uh, he says that he was standing in the shower, and he'd not yet turned on the tap, but his feet started getting wet. He was crying. And he came, in, in, this, in this moment, as he, as he tells the story, he had a conversion experience to God and Jesus Christ. And this then freed him of his writer's block. He finished his master's. Uh, he then wanted to immediately abandon all of his graduate work um, and do theological work. But he was persuaded to, to stay. And he so his um, his master's was on negritude and surrealism, uh, looking at the, the work of Chikai Utompsi. And then as... As his work continued, then he really he was still wrestling with this question of identity. You can see one of the, the um, most profound ways to see this is that to look at the footnotes and the sources that Bariyako used between his master's thesis and his doctorate, in his his doctorate, which gets called um, to translate it to the uh, the interior universe of Chikayat Utompsi, and so he really begins to narrate. Um, Chikayo is full of angst, um, and Baraco begins to narrate this angst in in his masters. It's all the authors from Negritude, and then in his doctorate, it's there's a Bible verse on nearly every page. Um, it's a radical change in sources, and as he really seeks to plot and to understand this interior, interior universe of. Uh, Chakayeth, and his claim, in a sense, is that Chakayeth was missing God and Jesus Christ. This is a radical claim to be making at a French university, um, in the in the nineteen seventies, uh, and he he knew that, um, and he was happy to do it anyway. And this then propelled him to continue this work on identity. So when he he then got his a master's in theology at London Bible College, now London School of Theology. While he was there, he met Andrew Walls. Uh, that began a friendship that lasted the rest of his life as he then went up to Aberdeen to study with Andrew Walls. So he gets a PhD with Andrew Walls. And his dissertation with Walls is um, it's originally called Theology and Integration. And then when it gets... So he finishes that in 1983. When it gets published in 1993, it's called Theology and Identity. And this becomes his first book, where he looks at four Greco-Roman authors and compares them to four 20th century African theologians. And basically claims that they're doing the same thing. That um, Justin Martyr and Tertullian and these... Haitian, they're, they're, they're wrestling with what it mean to be Christian in the Greco-Roman period, and that those theological and cultural wrestlings can be very aptly compared to the wrestlings that were taking place in the 1950s and 60s in African theology, in authors like John Mbiti and Biancato and others, that as they were trying to think about what it meant to be Christian after at the tail end of colonization. And what this, it's a whole, it's a whole narrative. It's a big, thick book. That's a whole narrative of identity and what is Christian identity. And so that's, that's a bit of what happens in that chapter as both Mediaco's personal narrative of trying to sort through this question. He then finds um, others that have sorted through that question themselves. And he does never say this quite explicitly, but I get the sense that in reading both the greco-roman authors and the earlier african christian theologians he helped himself to yeah. narrate and, and to narrate and then understand these questions
1: thank you for that answer and we will return uh in regards to how uh bediaco um you know utilizes these authors greco-roman authors um in his work in our later question but um Now, thinking about the second chapter, um, for our listeners who might be interested in the field of world Christianity, uh, this second chapter might be of great interest um, as it is titled Translatability, Relevance Without Syncretism. The reason why I say this is because for students and scholars in world Christianity, this word translatability is a familiar term and quite important as um, we have early pioneers of world Christianity that you just mentioned um, Dr. Hartman Andrew walls and even Lamin Sane who have greatly contributed to this very discourse and whom you know you, you've mentioned you know throughout your book as well. If I was to just briefly summarize on Walls and Sane's understanding of translatability principle, um, Walls would argue that you know God chose translation as God's mode of action for the salvation of humanity and that the incarnation of Christ, the word was divinity translated into humanity and that this was done under the very culture specific conditions. Um, for Laminsana, it was by translatability. Christianity expressed its universal ethos, its capacity to enter into each uh, cultural idiom fully and seriously enough to commence a challenging and enduring dialogue. Um, these both of these uh, words were, um, you know, taken from the works of very uh, Wallace and Sane. But for Sane, translated translation served as the core of cross-cultural mission with Christianity interpreted as dynamic translation movement. And the translation of the Bible kind of laying the cornerstone for religious evolution of uh, African communities as it gave reform, renewal, and revival for African Christianity. And we see also that kind of being very influential in the life of and the work of Bediaco as well. So with Walls and Sané serving as um, Bediaco's close interlocutors, Um, translatability for Bediako was another way of saying, in your words, um, and I want to put this in quote, universality. In other words, for Bediako, the translatability of the Christian religion signifies its fundamental relevance and accessibility to persons in any culture within which the Christian faith is transmitted and assimilated. As did with Wallace and Sané, translation of the Bible also serves, again, as a crucial factor for Bediako's thought and in African Christianity. And it is by this foundation that, as Dr. Hartman, you highlight, Beriaco claims that Christianity is indigenous to Africa. So, Dr. Hartman, as you delineate Beriaco's understanding of translatability in this chapter, the second chapter, you also mentioned some of the critiques that Beriaco received from African theologians such as Emmanuel Katagonal, Katagongole. Um, so, do you mind elaborating on some of the critiques that other African theologians uh, might have had on Bediako's work?
0: No, absolutely. There's a um, there's a lot there in your question, right? Thinking yes. about uh, about translation. Mm-hmm. Um, I first want to say that it would have been so fun to have been in Aberdeen in in the early 1980s when Walls and Sana and Bediako were all there when they were all um, spending time together. Walls is the the chair of the department. Uh, Sana is, is a teaching in that department in one of his early teaching roles. Bediaco is a graduate student. Um, I can only imagine what those. Um, I don't know how often the three of them had a conversation, but I, I would like to think it happened a lot. But I don't actually I don't actually know. Um, what I can say is that so Beriako cited Sana over seventy five times um, throughout his works, and. Um, Kind of deep fondness for uh, what for for Sana's work and for particularly for this work on translation, I think particularly like through Bediako's perspective about Sana, both at the his book translating the message, as well as an essay that uh, Sana published in the International Bulletin for Missionary Research in October of nineteen eighty three, on the horizontal and the vertical in mission in African perspective, these really did seem. Seminal for Beriako and thinking about translation. And thinking of thought about translation a couple different ways. Um, This is part of what's complex of thinking with Beriako about translation. Certainly, he thought of um, what might be the, the first level, the literal understanding of translation. He thought of language being translated and thought a lot about language and what it meant to have. People have access to scripture in the vernacular. Well, second, he also thought about the translation of ideas. Uh, in part, this is where Sana was super helpful to him in thinking about what does it mean to take these theological ideas that have been around for thousands of years, how do we understand them in an African context? But then he also thinks about the infinite translatability of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ the God in the, is God translated into human flesh. And so you have this divine act of of translation. And so part of what happens um, as far as Beryako and his and his critics on this, is that Bediako uses translation in so many different ways that it's not always clear to his critics which way he's using it at a certain time. And that upsets them. So um, uh, thinking about Katangale, In Katangale's critique, um, I addressed this on pages 35 and 36 of my book. And actually, I'm going to read part of it because I think it helps. There's actually a lot going on, I think, in this this conversation between Bariyako and Katangale. And um, I want to get it right, not just off memory. So one difficulty with Bariyako's understanding of translation is that the concept of translatability seems to take on a life of its own, becoming an independent actor. This being the idea that is it God translating here or is, is translation like off and running and it's happening by itself? So for for Katangale, Katangale writes, quote, There's something misleading about Badiako's attempt to prove the non-foreignness of Christianity by setting up an infinitely translatable gospel, not Christianity, as the crucial factor in missionary work. So that's from Katangale's uh, Future for Africa. So Bediako believed that it's only by understanding and appreciating the inherent translatability of the Christian faith. And then um, Bediako writes this next quote in Christianity in Africa. So believe Bediako believed it's only by understanding and appreciating the inherent translatability of the Christian faith that we can appreciate the true character of the continuing Christian witness and enhance the genuine development of new indigenous traditions of Christian thought. So even in that brief paragraph, there's a lot happening. And part of what's happening there with Katangale and Beriako, I think, is a bit of a Protestant and Catholic um, disagreement. Um, Beriako is a self-described African evangelical. Beriako is very interested in the gospel. It's worth asking what he means by gospel. But this this is his primary, the gospel is what's important to Beriako. Katangale is Roman Catholic and is critiquing Bediako for a, a lack of discussion, belief in the institutional church. Um, Katangale wants the, the, the church, in his case, the Roman Catholic Church, to be the primary actor theologically. And on this point, Bariakon and Katangale, they just disagree. And they disagree on a very deep kind of a theological ecclesial level. It's now getting worked out on the level of translation. Um, so I actually think that they're not having a conversation at this moment about translation itself they're actually having a conversation about ecclesiology and which, whether a more Protestant or more Catholic ecclesiology is better. So that's, that's, that's the Katangale piece. Um, but this question of, uh, for Bediaco, translation does so much work for Badiako in his, in his writing. Um, and in his theology that you, you, one could wonder whether it's, it's, it's a life of its own. Um, Bediaco, if if asked, he would not say that. Um, he would st- always point to Jesus Christ, um, but it's it's a question worth asking.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for that thorough answer. Um, yeah. I wanted to bring this up because you know it, this is not the first time. Well, there are several instances where other theologians also you know question uh, Kwame Bediako and his work and and you know have a discussion uh, regarding his work as well. And I, I thought it was important to you know kind of uh, put a put into the limelight of, of these interactions uh, between other African uh, theologians as well. But once again, thank you for that answer. And I think that one of the notable contributions of Beriaco's work that you highlight um, in the next third chapter is his uh, tremendous effort in trying to, um, if I may quote you, quote, bring African Christian thought out from the looming shadow of Western Christian thought. I think that I really like this quote. Um, and this is to establish this idea that the Christian is indigenous. Um, Christianity is indigenous to Africa. And we see Bediako attempting this through history by connecting the contemporary African Christianity to its uh, Christian past or the pre Christendom Christianity. Um, especially as I think we mentioned, um, you know, uh, engaging in early Christian authors, the, the, Tatian the Syrian, uh, Tertullian of Carthage, Justin Martyr of Rome, and Clement of Alexandria. And in my close reading of your book, I remember how the work of Clement uh, of Alexandria significantly influences Bediaqua as well, um, especially in locating the foundation of African Christianity in African uh, primal religions. So Dr. Arman, could you explain a little more on how Belliaco draws from these early writers and how he utilizes their approaches and especially um, on his use of uh, the controversial word parmo um, as a positive term in his reconstruction of the history of African Christianity?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you for that. There's a key moment in uh, one of Belliaco's last public lectures where he's giving a tribute to Andrew Walls and uh, compares... Bediaco compares himself to Justin Martyr and Bediac- and Walls to Justin Martyr's mentor. Um, so there's, there is this figure of Justin Martyr it does play a, a, a subtle, not terribly obvious, but it almost as a model of um, how Bediaco understood his own work. And so this question of Primal. Um, by the time Bediaco's writing in, in the late 20th century, Primal has a very bad and well-earned uh, bad reputation. Um, particularly from the 1910 Edinburgh Conference, Primal was a way of uh, primarily Europeans describing Africans and others as backward, um, as uneducated, as uneducatable, um, as lesser, um, and in ways that now the 21st century we probably would even call racist, um, and but Echo seeks to. Reclaim primal in a sense by going back behind the 20th century, uh, behind Edinburgh, and really thinks of primal in its most basic meaning. He's thinking about primal and things connected to the earth. Uh, things, I mean, I, th- I think of primal urges, even uh, these things that that we we feel without thinking. And what Bediaco wants to do is really think about the primal imagination, that if we are connected to that which is around us, when we're stripped down to our most basic, that when we're not trying, when we're not, you know, enlightenment humans who are all enlightened after Rousseau and all these big thoughts, like at our most basic, what, what is, what's our imagination? What does that look like? And what Bediaco claims, and many of this is truly indebted to Andrew Walls, um, and where Walls kind of started. Ah, uh, Badiako then ran with it. but at its if we have we have that primal imagination, how does that then connect us to God? And what Bediako claims is this primal imagination is the substructure of Christianity. And so for Africans, it's easier to point to what the primal imagination is. Um, this also will then allow Badiaco to have a positive understanding of African traditional religions. Um, which he will then call evangelical preparation for Christianity, but what it it also puts him in a position where he's critiquing the West, Europe, and North America for having lost the primal imagination. He basically says all you've got left are these relics, things like Sunday and Moon Monday, Moon Day, um, right, Thor Day on on Thursday, um, that's we have these relics of that. You know, perhaps um, the around. The tree at Christmas, which is not a, a biblical symbol at all, but is is likely a Northern European pagan symbol that's been appropriated by Christians, and now we have Christmas trees in our home at Christmas time. So any of these, but I was like, all you have left are these kind of echoes of it, but you've lost touch with the primal imagination, and so for him, it's it's vital to understand how God is working at the most basic levels of humanity, um, and so he really wants to recover those and encourage other Christians to recover them and to use them in their understanding of the Christian faith.
1: Well, thank you for that great answer. And I've noticed that other scholars um, that we do study in world Christianity, you know, trying to reclaim uh, certain words that have been, you know, um, oftentimes, been negatively perceived in the West, um, and we see uh, scholars and theologians from the Global South trying to reclaim that. And I think Bediako's work, um, as you've mentioned, really you know tries to do that, in with that word "primal" um, um, in his work and, and in his in his mindset as well. Um, In the fourth chapter, you underscore the importance of scripture um, in Bediako's work. Um, uh, This chapter was very um, emphasizing uh, the scripture aspect, and I was very curious to hear more of uh, your thought as well on this. But for Bediako, if there is one thing that he praised uh, the European missionaries for having done is their translation of the Bible in African languages, which, as Bediako would argue, also, quote, weakened any Western bias in the missionaries' presentation of the gospel, end quote. Um, for Bediako, not only was the scripture at the core of his theology, but he argued that the scriptures in the mother tongue uh, was central to African Christianity. I really like that word, how you use mother tongue. Um, Dr. Armour, here I would like to kind of pose in a briefly two-part question. Um, do you mind unpacking how Beriako understood, um, you know, scripture in his engagement uh, of the gospel and the culture? And what was so significant about this notion of mother tongue for Bediaco, um, especially in regards to understanding uh, the scriptures?
0: Mm-hmm. That's a great question because it was very important to Bediaco. Yeah. In the, the subtitle to that, to chapter four, I quote Beriako, where he says that the word of God is always vernacular. Yeah. Um, and th- that I think sums it all up for him. That God doesn't need someone else to translate on God's behalf to speak to any human. That God speaks to each one of us in the language closest to our heart. In the language we first heard that Beriako refers to as the mother tongue. He gets some criticism for the the gendering of that as mother tongue and not father tongue. That's um, worth noting, but the idea here is that it's the language that we, as babies, heard first that f- that formed us. Uh, Berriaco also thinks about this in in one kind of offhand comment, as well as uh, the language people swear in. Um, that um, that it's is it's it's, it's what it gets it connects to primal right. It's it's that which cuts cuts the deepest. So, that, um, oftentimes people will pray. Right in the language that is there is is the closest to their heart, which is often but not always their their first language, that would be uh, what Beriako would refer to as their mother tongue. So Beriako is trying to cut out the European intermediaries, uh, trying to remove the colonial um, imposition of languages such as French and English and Portuguese, uh, and say no, God, you don't you don't need to use a European language to talk to God. God doesn't only speak English, um, but for Beriako, that would have meant that God speaks ga and God speaks Twi, um, that speaks uh, God speaks uve, these languages in Ghana, um, and that, that that is how people are to approach God and Jesus Christ. One interesting note on this is that the Akufi Kristallar Institute uh, grants PhD degrees. Um, but one of the things that Betty instituted was that when you write your your PhD, you have to write an abstract in your mother tongue. The degrees are typically in English, um, but the writers typically are from all over Africa, and he wanted to make sure that any of these high, lofty, intellectual ideas getting produced in a doctoral dissertation could be conveyed in a paragraph uh, in one's mother tongue. So I think that was a I mean, helpful institutionalization of Bediakwa's conviction.
1: Well, thank you for that insight. I mean, that's very fascinating to hear. And I, I think very relevant, too, yeah. uh, according to what Bediakwa uh, has emphasized in re- regarding to using uh, mother tongue. And um, I remember how, you know, he also compares the works of John uh, MBT and um as well, um, Idowu, in, mm-hmm. in regards to um, mm-hmm. you know making this uh, kind of disconnect uh, with uh, missionaries in the West, mm-hmm. um, and then trying to make uh, Christianity uh, more indigenous uh, in this uh, in this work as well.
0: So, so just be careful there, because Baracoa is not trying to make Christianity indigenous.
1: Oh yes, uh, right? no.
0: he's trying to claim it. It's been indigenous. Yes, and we need to remember indigenous. that it is. It's this classic moment with Baracoa, where he's like, "We don't have to do anything here. Of course, we just have to remember what's already been the case."
1: Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. Um, and now in the next two chapters, um, you invite the readers to think about matters of theology and to look at some of the complexities that Bediaku wrestled with. Um, uh, in chapter five, you highlight how Bediaku emphasized the importance of contextual theology. And how we saw, quote, the contextual experiments of African Christian thought had exportable lessons for the other parts of the world, especially the increasingly secularized societies of Europe and North America, end quote. But what I found particularly fascinating in this chapter, uh, Dr. Harmon, was your delineation of Bediaco's Christology. Um, here you bring to the limelight various factors, the importance of ancestors, um, especially in the African traditional religions, this notion of ancestor Christology in African theology, and Bediako's own journey of locating Jesus Christ uh, within the Afri- African culture. And I've noticed that one of the biggest challenges challenges that Bediako faced was in regard to addressing the role of and signi- significance of ancestors, um, especially as there is a close connection in African life between ancestral uh, function and tribal politics. Um, I was wondering, Dr. Armand, if you could say a little more on this matter. How did Beriako navigate through this tension uh, between the importance of ancestors in African culture and the universality of Jesus Christ? Mm
0: -hmm. This is very important for Bariyako, and probably Mm -hmm. his best known essay Mm -hmm. is called Jesus in African Culture, a Ghanaian Mm -hmm. Perspective. Um, It can be found both uh, individually as well as um, some of the early chapters in the collected volume of Jesus and the Gospel in Africa. And so in, in, there, in, so in there, and then as a chapter in Christianity in Africa, Biakko really develops this, his ancestor Christology. He says that one cannot think about any African culture without thinking about ancestors, and that um, this is not a question that anyone in the West thinks about. Again, because of the lack of the primal imagination in the West. And Paniaco then sets out to establish how can Jesus Christ be considered an African ancestor when clearly Jesus Christ is not African. And so he asks the question of what would Jesus look like if Africans thought of him? Well, he, he wouldn't have blonde hair and blue eyes and white skin, as you can find on way too many North American, you know, Sunday school classroom walls. Well, what, what would Jesus look like? And so he become, it becomes clear to Bediaco that to go about thinking about this, you can't think about Jesus' ancestry or ethnicity. So what he does is he thinks about the fact that because Jesus Christ has died and raised again, been raised again in the resurrection, that through looking at Jesus' divinity that you can look at Jesus as the universal ancestor of all. And so this then allows all Africans, in fact all peoples, to claim Jesus as their ancestor, what he calls the supreme ancestor. And so that, that then allows him to really connect, this is the kind of the cross-cultural move um, to connect Jesus Christ, who of first century Palestine and Jewish descent, with twentieth-century Africans, so that that's that's how he does does it. And it. It's tracked particularly in the essay and
1: then in that chapter. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. And and. As I mentioned in the following chapter, you discuss some of the important points Bediaco addresses uh, in considering the implications of this uh, geographic shift in the center of gravity of the worldwide Christian population and how an intellectual shift away from treating Western thought as the center was crucial and inevitable. And one of the important points Bediako calls for is this uh, remaking of theology and, and the need for scrutinizing the relationship between academic theology and grassroots theology. Uh, and, and this is, uh, I think, one of the highlights of this chapter as well. But also it is here, Dr. Hartman, you also touch upon Afua Kuma, a Ghanaian mm-hmm. female theologian and her impact on Bediako. Uh, in my own studies and my classes here at Princeton Theological Seminary, I've also had the uh, privilege of reading her work, uh, Jesus of the Deep Forest. But I thought it would be pertinent to introduce her and to talk about how she impacted Beriako's work. Um, Dr. Harmon, do you mind uh, speaking more on this about Afua Kuma, her work, and also how Beriako draws from her short but impactful book, Jesus of the Deep forest. And if I may ask, how has she also helped you uh, in your own work uh, to understand African Christianity?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Afuokuma is, is phenomenal. And um, I love that description you gave her as a theologian. Because mm-hmm. my guess is that she wouldn't have described herself that way. Um, but yet she she's doing theology um, as a a farmer who did not read or write and composed these hymns about God and Jesus Christ and did so th- through the images that were available to her of um, mountains and lions and elephants and any any number of these these images that were close to her and so Badiaco again in Jesus in the Gospel in Africa there's an essay um, called Cry Jesus that Beriako wrote about Afuakuma. And what he does in there, and I think the way that she inspires him theologically, is this, it's grassroots theology. Um, Afuakuma's theology is not coming from books. um, And it is really coming from her lived experience in the world. And she's then using what she has been taught about who God is and the stories that she's heard in scripture to then take those and to look for ways that they are reflected in her world and this is the work of theology that she is is taking these these kind of eternal messages and seeking to understand them and to apply them in her daily life and um we're blessed that they got recorded uh first in Chui and then translated into english uh so that we have the privilege of reading them today and the pediaco had the privilege of of reading them as well um even today, they often have copies of Jesus of the Deep Forest for sale in the bookstore at the Okofi Crystal Institute um, because of uh, the kind of her ongoing influence that um, in many ways was unintentional on her part, but lasting
1: nonetheless. Thank you for that. Um, so far, uh, we have carefully looked into some of the important points to Bediako theology, from dealing with issues of identity to unraveling some of the complexities between, you know, Christianity and the African culture and the gospel. But before we segue into the into the final chapter, I would like to g- express my sincere appreciation for your book, Dr. Hartman, as um, it has not only helped me to better understand African Christianity, but also um, challenged me to reflect on my own theological convictions as well, um, as a student as well as a Christian. And this all has been very helpful. And as you pointed out in the beginning of your our interview, this introduction to uh, Beriaco theology has been very helpful and very interesting and. And, and worth uh, reading for all our, re- our listeners as well. So thank you so much for that. Um, in the last chapter of your book, we are introduced to some of Bediako's approach to broader matters, such as understanding of politics. One point I would like to highlight here is your treatment of Bediako's view of Islam. Um, mm-hmm. Even though it is not treated at length in your book, um, uh, you know there's snippets um, here and there, but at mm-hmm. the end, of, at the last chapter you do, Provide some depth, but I was wondering if you could elaborate more on this on his approach to Islam. How does he engage with Islam in his writings, or does he situate Islam within African religions? And does he view Islam as a threat for Christians? Mm-hmm.
0: Let me begin with that final question. Um, the answer is no. Bediako does not view Islam as a threat to Christians. Um, I find Bediako to be helpful on in questions of religious pluralism as a Ghanaian. He grew up in a multi-religious society where there were Muslims and Christians and practitioners of African traditional religions. So there's no sense of, of superiority of one or of um, that there's a threat. Uh, and this is one of the gifts then of his theology to, the, to a world that's becoming, at least to the West, that's becoming more multi-religious. And as others think that this is a problem, but I was like, it's not a problem. This is, this is life. Um, let's let's live with this. He did definitely have a sense... Well, he first, he definitely viewed Christianity and Islam and African traditional religions as all African religions. They were religions of the continent of Africa. And he also felt that both African traditional religions and Islam, in different ways, were incomplete, and that their completeness would only be found in Christianity. And so that's that's how he... He didn't view Islam as a threat, but he also um had a strong the felt that Christianity was primary, I think is the way I'd put that. So he doesn't deal in his writings a lot with Islam, but that's kind of what comes through in the moment that he does. Yes.
1: Well, Dr. Harmon, thank you so much for your time today uh, to discuss your book as we examine Kome Bediako's work and of African theology and Christianity. As we end today's interview, there is one final question I would like to ask um, all my guests, and that is, do you mind sharing with us what your current and future projects are and what you hope to work on? Mm-hmm.
0: Um. Thank you for that question. It's um, I love learning about All the current theology that's being written around the world, Um, in you know, including, I think that the, the there's a question of where people ask questions like, where's the future of theology? Well, Bediako would answer that question that the future of theology is where the people are, where the Christians are, and the Christians are in the developing world, and so I continue to uh, seek out and seek to learn from Christians and theologians. Writing and thinking and living in the developing world, and hope that I'm able to to listen to them, and um, if I have the opportunity to amplify any of what they're saying, I, I seek to do so. That that there are there's a lot of messages that um, many of us here in the United States, in particular, need to hear from the rest of the world, and uh, so that's a, that's a bit of broad strokes of what um, my work entails at, at present. Um, as well as continuing to to seek out ways to, to talk about Bediako and other African theologians. So thank you for this opportunity today where I got to do that very thing.
1: Thank you, uh, Dr. Hartman. And I look forward to reading more of your works in the future as, as well. And once again, thank you so much for being on today's podcast. Um, and thank you everyone so much for listening to today's episode in which we explore Tim Hartman's new book, Kwame Bediako, African Theology for a World Christianity published by Langen Publishing in 2021. And we also have the same book coming out in Northern America um, by Fortress Press uh, in February of 2022. Um, This is your host, uh, Byung-ho Choi, and stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity.